The worst day in the history of the British Army was the 1st of July 1916, the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Now, there are those who say that such a tragedy was just inevitable, given the novelty of trench warfare. In the end, they say, the sacrifice of so many wasn't lost since the battle proved a turning point in the wearing down of the German army. But we've seen the British Army contributed dramatically and culpably to the deaths of so many on the Somme. It had had many years to prepare for trench warfare in northern France, but had utterly wasted the chance. Fundamental weaknesses in its command structure created no mechanism for evolving new ideas or sharing best practice. Partly as a consequence, the army had refused for many costly months to investigate new weapons like the machine gun, and still in 1916 was hopelessly behind the German army in its use. It had also, time after time, rejected out of hand what would turn out to be one of the most important means of breaking open the entrenched German defences, the tank. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Roseback, and we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. On Christmas Day 1914, Maurice Hankey, Secretary to the British Committee on Imperial Defence... Which was a kind of committee in charge of all the armed forces in Britain. ...sat down to write a memo. He set out the evidence of the previous three months in which the Germans had dug lines of trenches from Switzerland to the Channel and protected them with miles of barbed wire. Whatever some apologists for the British Army might like to claim, it was not a new problem. Trenches had been used time and again in warfare for over 60 years, since the 1850s. But the British Army had not yet begun to consider how they should be tackled. Above all, Hankey argued, what was required was a vehicle with caterpillar tracks that could cross rough terrain, crush this awful barbed wire and climb over the trenches. The army had been offered the idea on at least three occasions before the war and shown no interest in it. Well, Hankey said, it was now time to get on with its development. Had the army thrown its weight at last behind the project in December 1914, it's possible that its attack on the German trenches on the Somme 18 months later could have been spearheaded by a fleet of tanks. But of course, the war office again turned it down. It wanted to throw men against the German machines. Oh, and horses. Help was about to arrive, however. It came from the Royal Navy. When it came to new technology, the British Navy had two clear advantages over the army. One was a long history of technical innovation that had made it by far the most advanced navy in the world. It was, after all, new technology that literally kept the navy afloat. The other advantage the Navy had was the first Lord of the Admiralty, the man in charge, one Winston Churchill. We're not always fans of Churchill, but Churchill read Hankey's memo. Trenches were not his problem because he's in charge of the Navy. But as we see in our series on why Britain significantly pushed Europe into war in 1914... For which Churchill bears a heavy responsibility. He was not a man to care about conventions. As an exasperated American president would say during the next world war, 
Churchill had a hundred ideas a day, four of which might be any good. But of course, four is more than most of us have. The man was, more often than not, a dangerous liability. But he could be brilliant. By Christmas 1914, Royal Naval pilots had, with Churchill's backing, been careering around Flanders in homemade armoured cars. Not planes. No, in homemade armoured cars. They infuriated the British Army with their wild disorder and ill discipline. But they had caused such disruption that for a while the Germans believed that a huge new force of reinforcements, perhaps including <laughs> many thousands of Russians, had arrived on their flank. That's great. Reading Hankey's Christmas Day memo, Churchill fired off a letter to the Prime Minister, Asquith. The question to be solved, he wrote, quotes, is the actual getting across of just 100 or 200 yards of open space with wire entanglements. All this was apparent more than two months ago, he continued, but no steps have been taken and no preparations made. It would be quite easy in a short time to fit up a number of steam tractors with small armoured shelters in which men and machine guns could be placed, which would be bulletproof, end of quote. Indeed, it was completely obvious when you thought about it. Well, if the army wanted nothing to do with the idea, then Churchill and the Navy would see what they could do. What followed was 21 months of extraordinary ups and downs, reinventing the wheel... Or rather, the caterpillar track. The caterpillar track. That, as we saw last time, the brilliant Australian Lancelot de Mole had already worked out in 1912, and the American firm Holtz had been developing since 1892. If you still want to believe, as some historians do, that the British Army was committed to innovation and machine warfare, then read John Glanville's Entertaining the Devil's Chariots about the extraordinary institutional hurdles that beset the development of the tank. Well, in June 1915, the Army finally joined the project. After all, in just two months, May and June 1915, the British and French armies had together lost a third of a million men, all for the sake of gaining eight square miles. They desperately needed to do something. The army side of the tank project was led by Ernest Swinton. Now, he's the engineer we've met before, an advocate both of the tank and the machine gun. And the army had, of course, sidelined him into writing official history and acting as its press liaison. Well, Swinton's new job on the tank development team was largely doing battle with his own army. <laughs> uh, the army's chief engineer in France, Major General George Folk, Falk, Folk, one or the other, told him, quotes, to descend from the realms of imagination to solid facts. Whatever that means. Falk, Falk had already turned down the idea of an armoured caterpillar vehicle in October 1914. We can see where he was coming from. Now, to be fair to the inventors and engineers of 1915, the task was difficult. And what Churchill's admirers don't tell you is that the project was made particularly difficult by Churchill himself. No surprise. Yes, it's true that Churchill championed the cause in high places and paid for it from naval funds. But for months, he had the engineers chasing the completely wrong mechanical goose. What Churchill wanted was a land ship, an enormous armoured people carrier that could blast its way among the trenches and lay waste to the Germans. And then, like the Trojan horse, a door would open and whole detachments of soldiers would pour out, seizing the German trenches for themselves. Well, the committee wasted months trying to come up with vehicles on a Churchillian scale. One proposal was for a behemoth with 40-foot wheels. Churchill imagined it carrying enormous numbers of men, tearing up train tracks, fording the River Rhine and invading Germany. 
But the technical problems with creating an armoured and motorised vehicle of that size, one that could even clamber over shell holes and trenches, let alone ford rivers, were insuperable in 1915. It was never a possibility. One proposal was for a bizarre machine that laid a sort of temporary bridge over trenches, but then had to go back and pick the bridge up when it was across. Uh, the bridge layer got hopelessly bogged down on the first day of trials in the mud at Shoebury Ness and Kent. Swinton, the army engineer, wanted a much smaller armoured fighting vehicle, bristling with guns, but carrying just its own crew. And that was a much more practical idea. After all, the Australian Lancelot de Mole had pretty much designed it in 1912. The French also wasted weeks trying to design huge landships, but then they too settled on a much smaller vehicle. And the French would use the caterpillar tracks that the British had already invented before the war. You remember there was a British inventor who'd sold his patents to the Americans because the British military weren't willing to pay. Well, using the existing caterpillar tracks was a much more practical approach than trying to reinvent the, the, cat- uh, <laughs> the caterpillar track. tracks. Yeah. <laughs> Back in England, it took £35,000 of the Navy's money and month after death-dealing month of the war until October 1915 before the designers came close to a workable design. And then it was just in time. The tank is a test case for the British Army before the Battle of the Somme. The army had entirely neglected to develop a strategy for breaking down the kind of entrenched defences that had appeared in war after war for over 60 years. From the moment trenches appeared in Flanders in September 1914, it was obvious to every intelligent observer that an armoured vehicle on caterpillar tracks would be an essential component in attack. The army had already turned down and lost a number of designs. It turned it down again in October 1914. And from February 1915, it was the Royal Navy under Winston Churchill that funded the development of what eventually became known as the tank. A prototype design was at last ready by October 1915. It was just in time because in November 1915, its champion Churchill quit the government after the disastrous failure of the attack he'd proposed in Gallipoli. Churchill at once volunteered for the army and went to Flanders as a humble major. This experience at once confirmed in his mind the importance of the tank. Despite his now very modest rank, he wrote to Sir John French, Commander-in-Chief on the Western Front. He pleaded with him to order at least 70 of the new armoured vehicles. He also, and this was an observation everyone who knew about tanks made, urged Sir John French at all costs to use the tanks together en masse, all 70 in one go. That would mean they could be kept secret until they were ready for a massive attack, but just as important, the first tanks were very slow and very prone to breaking down and getting stuck. Alone, a tank was horribly vulnerable. Alone, a tank could only plough a narrow channel through the enemy barbed wire, funnelling the following infantry into a dense column that the enemy could easily pick off. A force of 70 tanks, however, could open up a much wider front. With a great deal of luck, they might even break through the German defences and force the enemy into fighting in the open again. Well, the job of building the prototype was given to a firm called Fosters in Lincoln. They usually made tractors. The prototype was codenamed Mother, 
Well, that was better than the earlier codename, water carriers, which had been shortened to WCs. Which, for non-British people, mean bathroom, toilet? Yeah, water closet. (laughs) To keep her top secret, they made Mother's Hull and Chassis in two separate orders for the Navy. They said her chassis was just something the Royal Marines artillery wanted, quotes for demonstration purposes. Meanwhile, her hull, they said, was a water carrier for Mesopotamia. The workers at Foster's in Lincoln ended up calling her that bloody tank. And the name stuck. And the name stuck. On the 7th of January 1916, 11 months after the project had begun, Mother at last ventured under her own power out of the workshop and a few yards into an adjoining yard. Uh, She broke her caterpillar tracks on the way, but it was a small start. Uh, Now it would take nine more months to get Mother into action. The development team persuaded Lord Salisbury, whose stately home at Hatfield was close to London but sufficiently hidden away from casual spectators, to allow shell holes to be blown in his private golf course and a stream dammed to make a swamp. Then Mother was set off in front of an audience of politicians and military men. She had an eight-man crew, all trained to drive her and to fire her guns, a machine gun, Four light Lewis guns and one big revolving gun taken from a battleship. It was quickly clear that Mother wasn't bothered by any of the obstacles on Lord Salisbury's golf course. As you might say, she drove off over mud and shell holes and showed she could very slowly crush barbed wire and cross trenches. What should we say? Par for the course, hmm? Perhaps afraid of giving too much away, the War Secretary, Lord Kitchener, loudly declared in his high-pitched voice that Mother was nothing but a pretty mechanical toy. But it was obvious that she was potentially a trench-busting weapon, and even before he left the golf course, Kitchener was muttering that he would order a hundred. He signed the order finally on the 12th of February 1916. It was a Saturday, and Ernest Swinton, the engineer you remember on the development team, took the signed paper over to Lloyd George, who was Minister of Munitions, and it was in his office at the Ministry. Swinton and two others made Lloyd George sign over control of tank production to them there and then. The army had been so slow to believe in tanks, it was anybody's guess how long it would have taken them to make tanks if they were left to their own devices. Swinton, in fact, later said that he'd been ready to puncture Lloyd George's tyres if he'd refused to sign. (laughs) By then, incidentally, the French had ordered 400 of their lighter Renault tanks, which were much easier to drive but uh, too small to cross large trenches. By February 1916, it was already too late for the tanks to be ready for the summer offensive on the Somme. Now, the French and British had been discussing various dates for this battle and had finally settled on the 1st of July 1916. Don't believe the old army myth that the attack was all hastily brought forward to July because of the German attack on Verdun. That's just another old excuse for the army's dreadful performance. According to historian William Philpott, at a meeting between the French and British in January 1916, January, long before the attack on Verdun, the attack on the Somme had been originally agreed for May. Now, perhaps we can put in a good word here for the army in France's new commander-in-chief, Douglas Haig. Actually, it's among the very few it's possible to find for the man in this whole story. Haig was generally in favour of new technology. There's an old story, it's a bit of a detail, but it's a good story. There's an old story that Haig's friend, the Sherlock Holmes author, Arthur Conan Doyle, who'd been an army doctor during the Boer War, had designed and proposed bulletproof armour for the infantry, and that Haig turned it down because he said, only a coward would wear it. Well, the first part of the story is true. Conan Doyle did indeed design body armour and conducted a campaign in the summer of 1916 in the newspapers to get the army to adopt it. 
But the fact was that by then the army was already investigating bulletproof armour for its foot soldiers. And according to evidence put together by the Royal Armouries in Leeds, the man who had given perhaps the biggest push had been Douglas Haig. It was among the first things he'd done after being appointed Commander-in-Chief in December 1915. In fact, Haig would subsequently order 200 sets of body armour for each division, and 20,000 sets had been issued by August 1918. They weighed something over four kilograms, and they were useful for sentries and raiding parties, but they were a bit too cumbersome for major assaults. Anyway, all this came far too late to save any of those lives lost on the Somme. It was, in fact, another utterly obvious thing the army should have been developing long before the war had even started. Well, back to the tank. Haig had also sent a man to watch Mother driving off on Lord Salisbury's golf course, and he immediately backed the idea, though he believed it would only be possible to make 30 or 40 quickly because he didn't want to compromise the manufacture of other weapons. Particularly heavy artillery guns. Which he was short of as well. There was a moment in January and February 1916 when Haig was pushing the French unsuccessfully to delay the attack on the Somme until August. So it's tempting to speculate, although there's no evidence, that Haig was half hoping the tanks might be ready by then. At all events, Haig told the engineer Swinton that he was aware that casualties could be heavy in the upcoming attack on the Somme. In fact, they knew there were going to be heavy casualties. That's why they introduced conscription early in 1916, forcing everybody over a certain age to join the army. Haig told Swinton he therefore wanted to get the tanks into action as fast as possible. But that, as it turned out, was where a whole lot of new trouble began. Had the British Army got on with preparing for trench warfare in the years before the First World War, they could very easily have entered the conflict with a fleet of tanks. Over several years before the war, they'd been offered a number of excellent designs. None of them were taken up, of course, and it was eventually the Royal Navy that paid for the tank's design and development. By the beginning of 1916, a prototype was ready. Douglas Haig, the Army Commander-in-Chief, was now enthusiastic to throw them into the fight as soon as possible. But everything about the way the British Army then deployed the tanks was absurd. The new tank detachment was to be part of the motor machine gun service. Well, so far so good. A centralised organisation, not subject to the whims of the corps commanders. They, you recall, strongly believed in the traditions of the English gentlemen, who might be persuaded, but could never be ordered or told what to do. Well, for them, tanks, pff, who cares? But the problem was that the tank crews were only given junior ranks. So in practice, when it came to going into action, they would still be subject to the orders of the infantry commanders around them. They would still be kept in the dark about the overall battle plan, and they would have no say in the tactics of their deployment. The gentlemen officers at corps level quickly made it plain they wanted nothing to do with this newfangled machine. They made no attempt to reconnoitre the ground on which the tanks would be fighting, or to draw up any principles for using them. The French proposed using their 400 lighter tanks in combination with the heavy British tanks, perhaps because the French Renault tanks were too small to cross serious trenches, but together they'd make a massed, highly mobile attack. Well, the British turned the French down. If the British tanks ever broke through the German lines, it would be the British cavalry that would ride to victory. 
not a clanking pack of Renault tractors. Well, Ernest Swinton, the army major now in charge of tank training, finally began secretly loading tanks on trains for France on the night of the 13th and 14th of August 1916. That was six weeks after the fateful first day of the Somme. But Haig was in such a hurry that many of the tanks that were sent were among the first to be produced. They were still plagued with teething troubles, and many had already been damaged in training. Parts were already wearing out. The army, however, refused to establish a specialist supply chain to provide the tanks with spare parts. They would just have to take their place in the normal queue. No surprise then that many of the tanks that arrived on the Somme quickly broke down and could not be repaired. When the tanks arrived in France, a few of the gentlemen British infantry commanders, without, you remember, any general tactical guidance from above, assumed the tanks would produce an instant breakthrough. Well, it was quite unrealistic. There were too few tanks, they were too slow and still too unreliable. Most officers treated them as a joke. They wasted precious fuel and spare parts, making them drive up and down over obstacles for a bit of comic relief. And tank commanders who complained or demanded to be taken seriously were sent home. Nobody, you recall, should try to tell British Army gentlemen officers their job. By the time the army was ready to use them in September 1916, 52 tanks had arrived. It was now more than two months since the disastrous opening of the battle on the 1st of July. The tank officers pleaded to be sent into battle altogether, not a few at a time. It was what everyone who knew about tanks had always said. For the reason we've already mentioned, used together en masse, tanks could create a wide opening for infantry and potentially overwhelm an enemy. Henry Rawlinson, commander on the ground, even proposed using the tanks at night to maximise surprise and secrecy. Well, of course, Haig turned all of this down. He decided that the tanks would advance at dawn in groups of just three. They had orders to break through to a series of villages behind the German lines. Then, of course, guess who? The cavalry would ride through and mop up. Oh, yes, of course. So Haig was in favour of technology? Up to a point, shall we say. Providing the horse came first. Providing the horse came last. <laughs> yes. The tank attack was planned for the 15th of September 1916. The tanks arrived at the front line during the night, the noise of their engines covered by planes buzzing overhead. It had been such a tight schedule to get the tanks to France and ready for action that their crews were already exhausted. Haig's plan was for the tanks to advance five minutes ahead of the infantry, who would have to advance in narrow columns behind the tanks through the gaps they made in the wire. But with so few tanks in any one place, the infantry in their narrow columns would be much easier for the German machine guns to pick off. If the tanks ever reached their objectives, Haig ordered that they were to proceed further, and this time half an hour ahead of the infantry. Well, that's not much good to the infantry, and it would leave the tanks floundering alone with their poor visibility, horribly exposed to enemy artillery, and doomed if they broke down. In the event, famously, only 32 of the 52 tanks even got to their starting point. Just to the start. Under fire, the crews found themselves being sprayed with hot lead as bullets hit the outside and turned to liquid and spat through the tiniest of holes. The fumes of fuel and cordite from the guns was unbearable. The heat and noise from the engine was intense. The only way to communicate inside was with hand signals. 
Well, you can imagine, inevitably the tanks, already as you remember, worn out and poorly maintained with their exhausted crew, broke down. They also collided with each other and slumped into shell holes. Only 18 even made it across no man's land. One of the tanks, D-17, managed to advance one and a half miles with 300 infantry soldiers behind it, taking out a series of enemy trenches and machine guns. By now, the German artillery had managed to take aim and D-17 was forced to retreat, taking a direct hit on one of its caterpillar tracks. The crew bailed out and somehow got back to the British lines. Of the 32 tanks that had made it to the front line, only two were ready to fight the next day. There were, you recall, hardly any spare parts. And the next day, both of these two remaining tanks were quickly hit by enemy artillery. However, the tank had proved its point. News of D-17's exploit was instantly a press sensation. Though the first photograph of a tank didn't actually appear in the papers until the 22nd of November, and when it did, it cost the Daily Mirror £5,000, which was exactly the same as the tank had cost. Having a fleet of tanks at the start of the Battle of the Somme might have saved many thousands of lives, especially if the tanks had been used en masse, as all the experts had always insisted. But the tanks' stuttering debut had demonstrated something more important. They weren't in themselves the solution to the problem of the trenches, any more, in fact, than machine guns were. A year later, 376 tanks would make a massed attack at Combray. But still, there was no breakthrough. You can imagine D-17's crew thinking as they scrambled for safety after their tank had been hit by a high-explosive German shell that the real key to this trench warfare wasn't just in newfangled weapons. It was, in fact, in using a very old weapon properly. The biggest failure of the British Army at the Somme, and in fact in all the months leading up to it since the start of the war, was its catastrophic neglect of heavy artillery. Tanks finally joined the Battle of the Somme on the 15th of September 1916, six weeks after the catastrophic opening day. Had the army developed the tank when it was first proposed many years before the war started, the terrible slaughter on the Somme might never have happened. But the tank alone was not a war-winning weapon. That idea was invented in the years after the war by writers and politicians who bitterly criticised General Haig for his tactics, especially Lloyd George, Winston Churchill and the military writer Basil Littlehart. Now, the key to defeating the trench system turned out not to be a new weapon at all. The secret was in using an old weapon properly, something that the French had learned by the summer of 1916 and the British had catastrophically and signally failed to do. That weapon was the heavy artillery the big guns. 60% of British casualties in the First World War were caused not by machine guns or rifle fire, but by artillery shells. When you stop to reflect for a moment, it's painfully obvious that faced with lines of trenches and dugouts, machine guns and artillery batteries, you can't run around them and you can't march towards them unless you first silence the enemy firepower and destroyed his strongpoints. 
there's very little that you can do by tunnelling under them, or in the First World War anyway, flying over them. Your only option is to shell them from a distance. You have to master the art of using big artillery guns. Now, of course, as we've said, the British generals had entirely failed to take seriously the near certainty that the war with Germany would become a trench war. They believed they'd be riding around Flanders on horses, like Wellington fighting Napoleon a century before. So the British army entered the war armed mostly with light mobile guns, entirely the wrong sort of artillery for attacking trenches. Following its enormous war games exercise in 1912, as we've seen, the British army developed no artillery tactics to speak of and none for breaking down entrenched defences. Back in 1992, Australian historian Jackson Hughes calmly analysed British artillery in the First World War and his unpublished Adelaide doctoral thesis throws everything into a new context. You can get it online. Since then, other historians, notably Robin Pryor and Trevor Wilson, have taken the same approach. As you will imagine, it can get quite technical. There were, after all, all kinds of artillery guns, and we could easily lose ourselves in eight-pounders and six-inchers and howitzers and goodness knows what. So let's keep it as simple as possible. Artillery can basically be divided into two types, the mobile light so-called field artillery and the less mobile heavy artillery. Big guns. Australian historian Jackson Hughes showed that in 1914, Germans, French and British all put their faith in mobile, lighter, horse-drawn field guns. The aim was to hit an enemy on the run with shrapnel. Like pretty much everything in this story, shrapnel was invented by a British officer, Lieutenant General Henry Shrapnel, who had to develop his idea at his own expense of course. in the teeth of army obstruction. Wouldn't you have guessed it? You pack a shell with individual lead balls or bullets, then you put in a timed fuse so that the shell explodes just as it's approaching the enemy or just over his head. The bullets then scatter and cause, well, you can imagine, it's like a heavy-duty flying nail bomb. Horrendous. Lieutenant General Shrapnel invented it in the 1780s. And, of course, it took the British Army nearly 20 years to adopt the idea. But when it did... It and all the other armies in Europe stuck with it. By 1914, it was what most artillery guns were firing. Now, shrapnel is lethal and effective up to a couple of miles or so in open battle. So while your infantry wheel around trying to engage the enemy and your cavalry ride about trying to outflank him, your field guns stand a mile or two back and drop shrapnel shells on your enemy's head. You station observers to see what's going on and they shout. Yes, that's shout back to the field guns, detail instructions to guide them to their targets. Beyond this general idea, the British had developed no specific tactics for field guns. Now, this is very bizarre. What neither the British nor the French had worked out was that modern shrapnel guaranteed that those days of horse riding cavalry were over. Unable to shelter in trenches or anywhere else, the cavalry couldn't get anywhere near the enemy without being cut to shreds by shrapnel. So why did the British Army put their money on field artillery while at the same time planning for a war of movement centred on dashing cavalry attack? Well, presumably they reckoned that they could hit the enemy horsemen with their field artillery, but the enemy couldn't hit them with theirs. Well, that makes complete sense. I mean, wouldn't you go into war with a strategy like that? <laughs> Bizarre. The Germans, by contrast, had taken more note of the changing nature of warfare. 
they concentrated more on heavy artillery, huge guns that were more difficult to wheel around but were designed to attack heavily fortified positions. These guns fired high explosive shells that were designed to blow targets up several miles distance. According to Hughes, one reason the Germans invested in heavy artillery was that they intended to target the fortifications at Liège in Belgium and Verdun in France. Another reason was because the main German manufacturer of heavy guns, Krupps, had influential friends in high places. Either way, the Germans, being, as we saw in an earlier discussion, intelligently systematic about learning new methods, set up a school for Fuss artillery, heavy artillery. They perfected the art of placing observers to spot targets from hilltops and church towers and any other vantage points they could find. The Germans communicated with their far-off heavy guns by telephone. Instead of shouting. They also experimented early with sending spotter planes overhead. The value of heavy artillery had been conclusively shown in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-5. Which, of course, the British had observed very closely, as we saw in one of our early discussions. They sent more observers than anyone else. They did. And then ignored what they saw. Of course, as soon as the war broke out in 1914, it was glaringly obvious that the Germans had backed the right horse. As it were. German heavy artillery destroyed the British forces by firing from miles away, completely out of range of the British and French lighter field guns. For a while, the British were convinced there must be German spies giving their positions away until they realised what those German planes were doing overhead and how the German spotter system worked. Once the Germans had dug themselves into trenches, the British field guns, with their shrapnel shells, were of limited use. Barbed wire could be cut with shrapnel shells with their little balls of bullets, but it required very skilful gunnery and the exact timing of fuses. Anyway, as more and more wire was added, shrapnel became less and less effective against it. The Germans also sank their barbed wire into shallow trenches so that it was much harder to cut using shrapnel shells. Meanwhile, and crucially, the Germans also built dugout shelters deep underground. In fact, using British cement they'd imported before the war, the British found all kinds of Portland cement bags in their trenches. 25 feet down, German machine gun crews were quite safe. No shrapnel could touch them there. As the Germans said, sweat saves blood. The only way to tackle the German trench system was with heavy artillery. Big guns. Big guns. And the British, of course, had hardly any. All this puts the fighting on the Western Front in a different perspective. No amount of walking or running towards German lines was ever going to get anywhere. That's what the British did all through 1915 and the early part of 1916. And it was never going to get anywhere until the problem with artillery had been sorted out. But by the first day of the Battle of the Somme, so that's 1st of July 1916, almost two entire years after the start of the war, the British had made next to no progress. The repeated British and French attacks of 1915, all of them complete failures, have made it vividly, bloodily clear that German defences, peppered with deep shelters and bristling with machine guns, could not be broken except by heavy artillery. We picture the battles on the Western Front as infantry battles, waves of terrified soldiers sent disastrously forward in their tin hats to face German machine guns. Well, this tactic wouldn't have been unreasonable had the British artillery first been able to destroy the German wire, machine guns and artillery. The problem was not the infantry tactics in themselves, it was the British artillery. 
In fact, the British artillery was so poor that none of the attacks, including the Somme, should ever have been attempted until it had been sorted out. In May 1916, Haig appointed Brigadier General Noel Curley Birch as his artillery advisor. Birch told the official army historian after the war that it had finally dawned on the British that, quotes, the problem of siege warfare... In other words, attacking a trench system... ..had never been studied by the generals, nor by any of the leading gunners or gunnery schools, end of quote. Had never been studied by the generals. Extraordinary. Birch even remembered an engineer coming back from the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-5, where you remember both sides had dug into trenches and the Japanese had extensively used heavy artillery. The officer gave a lecture at the engineer's HQ in Chatham. He explained the overwhelming value of heavy artillery and high-explosive shells, breaking down entrenched defences. But, well, you've guessed it, as usual, he was completely ignored. As soon as the war began, therefore, the British Army was faced with a desperate race to catch up with the Germans and their heavy artillery. The British Army had always ignored the need for big guns. Now they tried to make up for it by bringing back a few antique old pieces and by starting to experiment with new ones. But the old guns were hopelessly feeble and inaccurate and the new ones would take months to design and produce. Nonetheless, the British Army was under pressure to do something, not least by the French, whom they'd originally gone to Flanders to assist. So rather than digging in until they'd solved the problem with the heavy artillery, throughout 1915, the British launched a series of catastrophic attacks in the hope at least of inflicting some damage on the Germans. The historian Lawrence James has argued that almost from the first day of the war, the British dignified this horribly costly and grossly ineffective approach by calling it a strategy of attrition. They tried to convince people, explained James, that, quote, killing as many Germans as possible, irrespective of one's own losses, would sustain moral superiority and bring ultimate victory. So you went on attacking, even though it had no effect, because it would sustain the moral superiority of your soldiers. What the British generals never admitted in public, and perhaps not to themselves either, was that without effective artillery... Heavy guns. None of their suicidal attacks ever stood the remotest chance of breaking the German army, or even killing more Germans than British. But it seems they actually didn't care. One commander who took up the tactic of continual attacks was the notoriously foul-tempered Lieutenant General Edmund The Bull Allenby. Now, Allenby had at first failed the exams to get into officer training school at Sandhurst, having already failed the exams to get into the Indian Civil Service. You get the picture. When, in 1915, an officer summoned up the considerable courage to raise with the bull... Six foot two, massive frame, bristling moustache. ..the enormous casualties that the bull's tactics were causing... He got the now famous roasting in reply. What the hell does that matter? Plenty more men in England. As the casualty lists climbed shockingly higher and higher, the British Army couldn't, of course, admit to the bereaved families that it had made a terrible blunder. It couldn't admit that it had failed to foresee the German trenches and the heavy artillery it would need to break them down. Instead, like some modern government that had not listened to warnings about a pandemic and had failed to make any of the right preparations and is therefore responsible for many thousands of deaths from Covid, they tried to persuade the bereaved families that they were doing their best. And what do people do in these circumstances? They tried to blame someone else. 
the British Army leaked a story to the press and it broke in the Times on the 14th of May 1915. As we shall see next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or you can contact us on social media at History Café Pod. And don't forget that it's easy to listen to a whole series. You just use the playlist you can find on SoundCloud and Spotify. There are 60 episodes and building. <laughs>